back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go. Behind the Lens, below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers. We talk to the producers, the writers, the directors, the composers, the cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, actors, you name it, we talk to them. Uh, and you can find us and listen to us every week right here live on AdrenalineRadio.com. Adrenaline Radio starts where regular radio ends. Uh, 11 a.m. every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. But then after we are live, we become a podcast available on all your favorite platforms. Uh, iTunes, Apple, Stitcher, Podbeam. Uh, we are now officially on Google Podcasts as well and a few other places. And we're starting to add some radio, talk radio station compliments. Uh, right now we're down in Louisiana. And I don't have the station ID uh, in front of me, but I will get that. Um, but you can find us 24-7, though, on Adrenaline Radio, on, on BehindTheLensOnline.net, uh, along with movie reviews, interviews, trailers, uh, red carpet interviews. Uh, it's all on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Uh, so... Look for us there. Follow us on Twitter, BTL Radio Show, or me directly, Movie Shark D, uh, as in dumb or Debbie, however you want to, dingbat, however you want to take that. Uh, also on Facebook and on Instagram. So find us, because you never know what's going to pop up or who's going to pop up. Uh, and talk, speaking of popping up, I'm very excited. You heard me, my regular listeners, you heard me talk about this last week. Oliver Thompson is joining us today, writer, director, and composer. Welcome to Happiness. Welcome to Happiness debuted on the festival circuit in 2015, which is I Saw It at Dances with Films. Uh, it had its world premiere at Newport uh, Film Festival. But I saw it at DWF. They got a distribution deal. The film was released in 2016. I have loved the film since I saw it. Uh, Oliver, first-time director with the film. It is charming. It is enchanting. The cast is incredible. Uh, Molly Quinn, Nick Offerman, Keegan-Michael Key. Um, it just goes on and on. But now... Welcome to Happiness has a director's cut that will be coming out this Friday. And I am so happy that I get to speak with Oliver because this is also a film that it's the kind of film that we kind of need in these times. You've, you're happy when you watch this film. By the end of the film, you are happy, you are hopeful, and you got a smile on your face. So uh, I'm just so thrilled that there is more new life coming for Welcome to Happiness. And we're going to talk to Oliver all about that. But before that, I decided to make today a happy and whimsical kind of show. After the past <laughs> week I had, I figured other people have weeks just as bad, if not worse. So we need happy and whimsical. So we're going to get that. In addition to Welcome to Happiness, we're going to find that with CryptoZoo. 
Crypto Zoo is an animated film. It just uh, released on Friday. So it is out there now. Um, I had a chance to speak with writer-director Dash Shaw and the animation director and one of the many animators, Jane Samborski. This film, it is... It is allegoric, psychedelic, kaleidoscopic, hallucinogenic. It is a wonder, an animation wonder. Um, Animation styles are pencil, watercolor, cell animation, uh, kinetic dreamscapes, dreamscapes. Color, color, color is metaphorically used in here. Jane loves color, as you'll hear in in my exclusive interview. You're going to hear in just a minute. But this is, most of you, if you know Dash Shaw and his comics, you'll understand the look of this film, the vibrancy of it, and the fantastical nature of it. This is the story of crypto zookeepers. Uh, Crypto zookeepers who are trying to save cryptids. And cryptids are chimeras, griffins, manacores, phoenix, hydras, krakens, uh, Kamudis, Bakus, um, all through ancient mythology, through mul- a multiplicity of cultures. It all comes together in this film where there is there are two people who are trying to save these animals from being, uh, these cryptids from being killed or, or tortured or worse. Um, and a zoo has been built. See, and that's the problem, because you want to practice conservation. You want to save these creatures, but it takes money. Where do you get the money? You have to somehow engage the public. And to engage the public, you need to build a quote-unquote zoo uh, where they can be displayed, where people can come see them. Um, So it's a catch-22, and it's one that zookeepers around the world in real life face every single day, conservationists and zookeepers. Uh, in the, it, you know, some of the most famous, you know, here, Philadelphia Zoo, Cincinnati Zoo. Uh, then you've got Ballarat uh, Wild Animal Park, the home of, of the most famous wombats in the world. Uh, you've got the Irwins running Australia uh, Zoo. So, but they face this constantly. And here it's brought to life in this through animation. And it focuses in on this one creature called a Baku. It is a legendary dream eating creature. It kind of looks like a Peter Max version of a pig and a baby elephant. And it's the cutest little thing you will ever see. Uh, And people are trying to find this little Baku. That's the big hunt. But along the way, you've got the military who want it because obviously, you know, if you have a creature like this that eats dreams, you can do all kinds of things with evil and good. And if the military wants it, you know it's not going to be good. But all of these scenarios, thematics, are set up here um, with the socio-political underpinnings uh, as well as ecological and humanitarian. And it all plays out through animation in this fascinating story. Uh, once you start, you cannot look away from it because you are the imagery is so compelling and it's so interesting. 
The voicing talents are outstanding. Lake Bell, Zoe Kazan, Michael Sarah, Louisa Krause, Peter Stamari, Thomas J. Ryan. Um, amazing, amazing voice cast with Lake Bell taking, really taking the laboring oar as Lauren, who is the, the chief savior in the field trying to find the Baku. So without any further ado, Take a listen to my exclusive interview with Dash Shaw and Jane Samborski. And yes, I'm warning you now, there are a lot of laughs. And you're going to probably, at the end of it, you, you're going to find out why Jane and I are laughing so hysterically about animated men with tube socks. Take a listen. Hey, guys. Hello. How, how are you today? Really happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you for wanting to talk to us. Oh my God, I am so in love with CryptoZoo. This is an allegoric, psychedelic, kaleidoscopic, hallucinogenic wonder. <laughs> I, I was taken right back to my youth in the 1960s, like the summer of 69, with the messaging, um, with the animation. This is a winner on every level, guys. I have to ask, you know, what came first with crypto, CryptoZoo? This is a case of, uh, you know, the chicken and egg dilemma. Do Does the animation come first? Does the story come first? Where do these, your creative minds meld to give birth to something like this? Well, you know, I think the first idea was drawing as our, you know, only way of depicting imaginary beings. They, they can't be photographed. So, I, you know, drawing is kind of a direct circuit to the imagination and the imaginary world. So the, that was a key, key component. I had seen a, an early Winsor McKay short called The Centaurs from mm -hmm. 1921. Um, and that has a great kind of um, adult sexiness of these kind of half-nude centaurs in, in, in a dark forest. Um, and around when I saw that, it was also when Jane had an all-women Dungeons and Dragons group in Brooklyn. And uh, so I wanted to write something that I think she would enjoy participating in. And she, she painted most of the cryptids in the movie. So th those were two of the very first things that kind of kicked it off. Mm -hmm. Where did this story and its messaging, because the messaging of peace and love, all living things... It is something that is so needed today, and it's something we haven't really seen in a long time be brought to life on screen, be it live action or animated. So I'm curious about how the story developed once Jane got her, got her little paintbrushes and pen and inks going on these cryptids. Well, around the same time that Jane was D&Ding and, and I was kind of looking at this, this animation and mythological beings, I was also, I had a fellow... I wasn't just playing d, &D I was also yeah. finishing the previous movie, let's just clarify. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sitting out playing d, &D all day. So I wish I had been. Um, it, uh, I had a fellowship at the New York Public Library, and one of the other fellows there was researching countercultural newspapers of the 1960s. And so he had them in his office, and the New York Public Library had this incredible archive of them, so it would be like 
1967 free weekly paper in Brazil and that same week in Chicago. And they all have this kind of incredible optimism and, and, uh, um, and a similar kind of almost fantasy art aesthetic across them. So I think that that, that, that was like creating uh, a collage of characters who would all have a different relationship with the, with the crypto zoo kind of became the center of the script and then fitting that into, you know, an exciting hour and a half long spectacle movie was the, the goal. Spectacle is the right word. This is a visual spectacle, Dash, that I am so in love with. But, you know, I love the story in that you give all these different perspectives. We see the militarism aspect of it. We see the rationale of protecting the cryptids. We see, okay, we got to turn it into a Disneyland kind of thing to make money in order to keep protecting this. You give us all sides for, every, for objectivity to step in, for everybody to make their own decisions and to see what they want to see, connect what they want, connect with what they want to connect with. And I so appreciate that, and I love how you did that without forcing anything down anyone's throats. You know, we, we really love that that comes across. I, what I say all the time is that if, if there was an easy answer to this problem, we would have found it already. And I think we, we really love the idealism that each of those characters is bringing to it, but when we make decisions about the directions our society should go, we need to be constantly checking in and making sure we're steering the ship. Yeah, but you know, all of the characters have to have to have their their stake in it and their and their motivation, and so um, you know that that's definitely in the, the the goal of trying to write something like this. And and you do it so beautifully, and then. Everything really comes to life on multiple levels with the animation, which is, it's fantastical. And I love your use of color in the animation, Jane. I love color. <laughs> the use of color and the way that the color vibrancy increases the deeper we get into the story. The individual cryptids, I love the mythological look not this 21st century or 20th century CGI kind of manipulation, but going back to ancient paintings, to ancient architecture with carvings, we really get to see some of the true beauty of the griffins and the manicures, the phoenix, things like that, without modern-day machinations applied to them. And that is so lovely. But the way you introduce color and how each location has a different color, and as things intensify, the color gets more vibrant. This is it, it's just amazing, Jane. Amazing. Thank you. Um, it kind of that was a deliberate choice, obviously, that I am very, very proud of. Um, as far as a little bit under the hood, you know, each scene is a separate After Effects composition. So in a very real way, each scene is being worked on like it is its own separate short film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm trying to bring together all of pieces of that. And in that moment, I'm less concerned about how it's interacting with the things on either side of it. I'm just trying to make that one beautiful space 
and then I zoom out and make sure that there is a, a progression across the whole film so that we, we don't stay in one visual look too long um, and that I'm glad that it's succeeding and helping propel the film forward. Yeah, I mean, it's really wonderful. And you know, the Baku, I fell in love with this adorable, innocent little Baku. And the way you animated him, it it's with bubbles almost coming off of him wherever he goes. Very fanciful, but almost like a Peter Max kind of feel from from the pop art of the 60s. And it is just so charming. You know, there was a little bit of a, a happy accident with the Baku. Um, I had designed the creature, and it was one of the last ones I painted because it was so important. And I went through the script, and I made a miscalculation about how many angles I needed. And so I kept, every time I came to this creature, I kept running into problems with like, well, it can't really move around very well. But in the end, that constraint made it this very still, and then it's got like the boiling of the the swirl underneath it. But there's something about it being this incredibly powerful and thought after creature to be small and cute and still, I think is a dichotomy that, that really helps mm -hmm. us fall in love with that creature. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's because it is so small and cute and it really brings together the innocence, almost the innocence of a child in determining what's good, what's bad. And that's what the Baku does. The Baku can pick, do I want to suck out bad nightmares or, you know, happy dreams? And it's just like a child growing up. They can go good or they can end up in, in juvenile hall. You know, and it's funny because it is cute and I think it is cute on screen, but... If you kind of take it out of context, it's kind of horrifying looking, too, at the same time. It's got these huge, you know, big eyes with tiny little pupils, and it, it's a very strange creature. Mm -hmm. um, but strange yeah, is good. Yeah, yeah. Strange is good in this case. You know, you mentioned something very important, Jane, and that's the pupils, the eyes. The irises are of all the characters are in constant motion. What and I just think it's it's fascinating. What was the thought behind that, guys, um, for having the irises in constant motion on the characters? Well, I, it's a trick, trick I pulled from anime. Um, something that you talk about in animation school is the is the idea of the boil. Like if you have a single drawing on the screen, if you have motion and then you stop on a single drawing, you just, it doesn't feel like you stopped. It feels like you've frozen. And so when we made the choice to go from a, a looping line to these still drawings and puppetry, there was a real fear that when they weren't moving, they would feel dead. And we, I have a relatively realistic animation style, and especially like when you're in close to those spaces, it, you need help bringing, bringing to life. If it is not going to be, if the movement isn't an and exaggerated. You you need that light, that move, the movements in the, the eyes, just to to connect with that character. Makes it feel like they have a soul. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very very so much so. A lot of staring at um, empty paintings. I think it would have it would have felt less alive. Yeah, I, I just I love what it does, and it does. It makes you feel like everybody has a soul and has a stake. Every creature, every person, it, I really like that. A, a huge, huge part of this beyond story and animation 
is John Carroll Kirby's score. Wow. This is, I, this score. Yeah, we're, is, huge, we're huge fans of this score, too, so. Ah, uh, you know, what were your conversations and thoughts and thought processes like with John in coming up with a score? Because uh, we've got flutes, we've got pan flutes, we've got drums, very organic feels. But then we also get some electronic, you know, a little bit of electronic synth thrown in there. So I'm really curious about what you were looking for musically. Yeah, you know, I'm not a musical person at all. And I also, you know, we live in Richmond, Virginia, Jane and I, and, and it, we, it makes me feel quite kind of removed from sort of finding uh, a, a composer. Um, and I knew working on this, I had to find a totally incredible composer. But that's something you haven't heard before. Because... If I went to see like an adult animated fantasy film called CryptoZoo, it would have to have the coolest score in the world. You mm -hmm. know, it's like one of the main, um, almost half the movie, literally, you know, it's for like entertainment and, and kind of delivering on, on what you're promising people. When you're thinking about, you know, these kind of iconic big animations that cross that line, you think like Akira, which has a really unique music mm -hmm. score that adds so much to the film. Um, and so that was the aspiration. Yeah. So um, I, well, another filmmaker here is named Rick Alverson, and I was kind of telling him that I didn't know what to do. And Rick got me in touch with the label Jag Jaguar, and I just told Jag Jaguar about CryptoZoo over the phone. And they recommended this guy, John Carroll Kirby, who I'd never heard of before. And I went and met him and told him about CryptoZoo, and it, and he had never scored a film before, and I loved his album, Travel. It was kind of one of his early albums. Um, and he seemed kind of not so interested in, in scoring an animated film. He had like a cool life of touring and traveling with bands. And um, then years later, um, when, when CryptoZoo was finally ready for him, he was even more well-known and was gonna tour even more. But then the pandemic struck, mm -hmm. and he was stuck at home and quarantine and so we got him he was trapped he had nowhere else to go um, and you know my our, our conversations honestly like uh like what jane said about akira um you know that score is not what you would think if you watched akira without the sound on you would not think of it having that score mm -hmm. it, it, something magical happened where that particular you know, instrumentation paired with this drawing created a third thing. So, so again, me not being musically um, uh, articulate, it was about trying to find some like magical third thing created by um, John and John and I. It really helped that you know we we felt that that earlier album was so spot on to the feeling we wanted to evoke, and so it was really just about John, please. You do you, uh, yeah. and we're going to be such a fan of, of what you give us. Yeah, I mean, there's there's this undeniable power that comes from a meld of music and animation, and you really see, and more importantly, feel that here with CryptoZoo, and it, it's just spectacular. So now it's taken you a long, it's, animation's a long journey anyway. Something this detailed, this involved, I'm sure it took longer than, than most animated films. So now that it's just about to be unleashed to the world, what have each of you taken away from this experience 
of bringing CryptoZoo to life that you can now take forward in your own lives or your lives as filmmakers. Organization is everything. <laughs> it's a technical answer. It is. It, it, nothing like this happens without a spreadsheet somewhere. Yeah, Jane had a crash course, I think, in, in organizing something. In producing, producing something at this scale and human management. And, you know, it, it was really frightening at the beginning of the film because we tried to organize it the same way we did high school thinking. And it was such a more ambitious project. Um, and I was drowning in sticky notes on my desk, and I had a baby, and I was going to murder my husband. It was terrible. Uh, but I found, I found spreadsheets. Uh, they saved the project and my marriage. <laughs> um, you know, I think for me, the the not you know not to get too cheesy. This is kind of what everyone says, but uh, it ends up kind of being about the people that that work work on the movie and kind of, and the, the the years that you spend working on it it's like a growth of 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 uh human relationships and and kind of um you know uh, learning to communicate getting better at these kind of social skills and kind of articulating um because often especially with the kind of art that i like it's quite hard to articulate why something is working it's it, often it's a bit abstract so um uh something in there i think is what what i got away from this you know if, if one last question for both of you you know what is it about animation that speaks to you that has no pun intended drawn you to animation i have loved to draw and paint and make things and solve puzzles my entire life and Animation is is the perfect mix of constraint and freedom for me. Um, you know, I this is kind of, again me and my technical answers. But if I draw in the drawing, I can get so caught up on the details that it becomes precious and fussy. But there's so much to be done in animation that it allows me to loosen up. And I think that for me, that it just it's a combination of mediums that allows me to say the things I want to say. Yeah, you know, um, it's so often when I like watch any movie or read any book, I'm thinking one of my criteria is how imaginative is this? What is like the force of this person's imagination? And I, and I want it to be powerful. You know, I don't, so the, I think animation allows for a huge imagination and imagination you know, is the root of everything, and everything kind of has to start as a as a dream before it makes its way into reality. So I really see animation as the perfect place to let imagination run wild. Well, the two of you definitely let imagination run wild with CryptoZoo, and to wonderful result. I have to watch it again. It is just so stunning. And don't think for a minute there, Jane, I did not notice in the first part of the film that you had Matt naked in the woods but for but for wearing socks. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I, I, he has to flip on that rock, so he's got to be wearing those two socks. Nah, it, I mean, theoretically that, but also I just, I just think it's really funny. <laughs> it's a, I saw the little lines. Like, there would be days where he's like, this is dreaded Matt, and he's wearing two socks, yeah. Uh, 
you know, socks on naked guys having sex has always been such a bone of contention and, and fuel for fodder of laughter in television and film. To see it in animation here, <laughs> I busted up laughing the minute they saw it. It was, it was, totally, totally. I used to have very strong uh, too much information. I <laughs> I will not I will not be intimate with anyone wearing socks. I refuse. It's impossible. It's impossible. You can't. It's too ridiculous. You can't because you just start laughing the minute you see the socks, especially tube I socks. I mean, tube socks are worse than argyles. Um, pornography too, where it was very much, um, I think, in early pornography almost exclusively that there was some taboo that the woman, the man needed to be more dressed than the woman. And I don't know where I got that piece of information, so it may not be true, but I feel like I read it 15 years ago somewhere and it stuck with me. <laughs> well, it is a it is a lovely touch that I totally appreciated and understood. So. <laughs> Oh, guys, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I can't wait to see what you bring us next. I know it'll be a while, but I cannot wait. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. And that was Dash Shaw and Jane Samborski. I truly do love CryptoZoo. I can't recommend it highly enough. And the scene, the opening scene that Jane and I were laughing about uh, with tube socks at the end of the interview, the film opens. Our entree into this world of the crypto zoo is by this hippie-ish couple, um, naked in the woods, Amber and Matt. Um, Matt voiced by Michael Sarah, Amber voiced by Louisa Krause. Um, and as they go through, and yes, they're... they're having a lovely, lovely enchanted evening naked in the woods, romping around. And character of Matt is wearing tube socks. And he ends up slipping, falling, hitting his head um, after he went chasing a unicorn. Uh, and throwing things and the unicorn got scared and something happens to Matt with the point on the unicorn's head. And then Amber is left to her own devices and finds this fence. And on the other side of the fence is this protected world of the crypto zoo. That is our entree uh, into the story. So it is beautiful, absolutely stunning visually. Uh, you cannot look away from this film. But the messaging within the film, and as I said at the top, it does not, they don't shove anything down our throats. Dash is, is, the way this is constructed, you decide for yourself. You decide for yourself what's right, what's wrong. Is it, do we have uh, battle lines of utopia versus pragmatism, counterculture idealism involved, militarism? It's all, the thematics are incredible and really give great food for thought. And actually, if you see the film with somebody, wonderful post-screening discussion. Um, so that, I can't recommend it highly enough. And it is out there right now. So make sure you see CryptoZoo. And now we're going to switch gears. And I'm so excited to welcome this gentleman to Behind the Lens, Oliver Thompson. Welcome to Happiness on Behind the Lens. Hi, thank uh, you for having me. I am 
so thrilled to have you, Oliver. Um, I have I have been on the Welcome to Happiness bandwagon since you were on the festival circuit. Uh, oh, fantastic! Thank you. Uh, I I'm actually one of the critics that gave you a rave review when, on its release in 2016. Uh, <laughs> this That's awesome. Thank you. It is. This is a true gem. Um, it's a dramatic fantasy that's whimsical, childlike wonder. Um, but you posit this very thoughtful commentary on cause and effect, the universal design. You know, what if? What if I could change things? Would I? Should I? Um, really interesting um, thematics that you have happening here within the film's construct. Um, and it all starts with... Um, a guy named Woody Ward, who's a writer, and he is the guardian between <laughs> two worlds. He sits in, in his apartment that gets messier by the day. His landlord is named Moses. Hello. Uh, so you know something good is going to come here. And Moses, you couldn't have done better than to cast Nick Offerman uh, as Moses. But hidden in a closet is a door that is a gateway to a place of healing, peace, and second chances. And the whole premise of Woody suddenly will get a printout on a, a an old, old, old dot matrix printer, and then somebody knocks at the door. And there are three questions to ask this person who knocked at the door. And it takes off from there. You have chapterized the film the same way Woody chapterizes a book. Um... This is so cohesive. It is such a beautifully done film. Um, I'm just in love with it. I, I talked to Molly Quinn, uh, I guess about a month ago. She's got an, another short film coming up. And Molly's not only in this film, but she was one of your producers on Welcome to Happiness. And we, the last time she and I talked was Dances with Films. So mm. uh, to talk to her again about this, not knowing your director's cut was coming, um, now I'm even more excited. Um, so uh, it, it's just where, for people that have not experienced the happiness that comes from this film, Oliver, where did the entire idea for this story arise? Because it is so original. Oh, well, first of all, thank you so much for all your uh, kind words. That's really amazing uh, for you to say. Um, the idea came from, you know, it's, I get asked that a lot. And of course, it's always hard to remember exactly where an idea came from, especially if it didn't come from a specific thing you read or a specific thing that happened to you or something like that. And with a movie, just listening to you describe the movie, I imagine we've probably, uh, there's probably a lot of people thinking, wait, what? And they're very, very confused <laughs> right now, which is funny. So yeah, obviously none of this really happened to me uh, specifically per se. But um, so the thing I do remember, though, the earliest thing I can remember is uh, my producer and I sitting around talking about the television show Lost. Mm -hmm. And um, we're both big fans, and I'm particularly a huge fan. And, um, and I just remember sort of at some point in the conversation thinking about how cool it would be to take a lot of the magic and mystery and mysticism of a show like Lost and set it in a little bit more um, meager or humble of uh, a setting. 
so you know not in this gorgeous incredible uh island but just like in a pretty simple one-bedroom apartment you know could you tell the same kind of story could you have all those same things um if if you did that and and i think it just kind of started there and you know went (laughs) snowballed well and you know personally between a desert island with lost and being in Woody Ward's apartment, the apartment in and of itself is so fantastical and so beautiful with thanks to the production design, which was done by Patrick Thompson. Uh, Patrick's production design is fabulous. But so much of this film, there's that huge mural on the wall. And mm-hmm. it's, it's it, life. It's life through through the eons unfolding on there. Mm. In color, you've got hieroglyphics, you, you know, the Egyptian culture, Sumerian culture. Uh, there's something that covers the history of time almost, which essentially mm-hmm. is what's happening here when you get a chance for a potential redo of your life. Yeah. Um, and... I've now watched it. I rewatched the film again. So I think this is like my fifth or sixth time seeing the film, Oliver. But oh, wow. I rewatched cool. I rewatched it again very early this morning, like at four thirty. So that <laughs> all the imagery was fresh in my mind again. And between that mural and the rest of the production design, um, the beautiful cottage that Molly's character and, you know, lives in, um, and then Justin Talley's cinematography and your entire use of color and saturation throughout the film. Uh, it's even more vivid and wondrous, especially in these times. Um, it, it just, and I see, keep seeing more. Every time I see it, something else pops up. And so I would much rather have that sense of imagination and wonder than a tropical island on Lost. So you may, you, <laughs> well, you have proven that you can tell a story that is mystical and, and fun and nice. Nice. It's a nice story, yeah. Oliver. Um, Thank you. I, I'm, that's, that's great to hear. And you're right. The, the mural is definitely uh, every sort of aspect of, the mural is a different progression of time. Like, you mm-hmm. know, so at the top you have the cycles of the moon, um, uh, through in the background, you see the progression of just one day. You see it go from sunrise to sunset. Um, and then sort of throughout, there seems to be a, a progression of a life cycle from, uh, there's a, uh, a fetus on the left side that progresses to a, a burial on the right. So all these various, um, cycles uh, of time mm-hmm. are you're very uh, astute in picking up on, on all that different stuff going on in there. That's, that's uh, cool to hear. I think it's just beautiful. And what makes it even more striking is your work with Justin on creating the visual tonal bandwidth and using light to great advantage um, because the bright light counters some of the darker aspects because when people at their low point... Um, you know, it's much, it, it feels more claustrophobic wherever they are, where they are facing, they have to, they're rock bottom. 
their own demons are coming to get them. And it gets darker and, uh, and emotionally and visually. But then you counter that with, okay, a bright light when they, if they are lucky enough to get to go through the little door in the closet and then out into a world of wonder. And you have Molly's character of Lillian along with Keegan-Michael Key of Proctor. The two of them are kind of shepherds, uh, in mm-hmm. a manner of speaking. And the cottage, it's their windows and it's light and there's rose gardens. And it's the white picket fence idea. Uh, and it's what people dream of, of in days gone by. And what you and Justin create with the lighting and the saturation to bring that to life and counter and show there's light. Just it, It's always darkest before the dawn, and you bring that to life here. And you do it so beautifully visually, complementing the individual stories that are being told. Yeah, that's, that's so cool. I mean, to... And, and Justin is just, you know, phenomenal and was such a, I mean, we were like just attached at the hip making this. And I think it's a, it's a, a real uh, labor of love for both of us. We just instantly, I think I described one shot I wanted to do the first time I met him. I said, yeah, this is one moment where I think I kind of want to whip the camera over here and then zoom in here. And just immediately I described one shot and he was just like, I get this, I get this guy, I get this movie, I want to, you know, and we just started going and going and going and going from there. And we had a collaboration that, um, you know, to this day, we are um, very close friends and uh, collaborators and we write together and we just, I I can't get, you know, my my biggest problem I have with Justin is I can't get on the phone with him because I know it's going to be a four-hour conversation. (laughs) So I have to really make sure my... (laughs) My night is is open. Do do you remember when the two of you were were planning the visual look, the visual construct of Welcome to Happiness? Do you remember what your considerations were to take the words on the page and make them come alive visually? The one thing I remember um, pretty clearly that I sort of tried to communicate to every department um and the actors as well and and just kind of the sort of aesthetic of the movie is that you know there's 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 sort of life on this side of the door and then there's life on the other side of the door and then there's characters that exist only on this side of the door and there's characters that sort of exist only on the other side of the door and then there's these couple people you just mentioned these sort of shepherds that kind of seem to be able to go back and forth um and so that was i guess sort of an over arcing um, sort of thing to always be considering mm-hmm. in the back of our minds. What what side of the door are we on? What side of the door does this character inhabit? Um, and how do we how do we make sure that that always feels um, like there's a, a bit of a divide there, you know, um, or at least that it makes sense, you mm-hmm. know, who, who, who fits where. If that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense, uh, especially when you watch the film and you see what you're doing with light and actually with the camera, with the framing. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got some really powerful scenes in there with very extreme close-ups. Uh, surprisingly, 
um, with Kyle Gallner's character of Woody. Some really intense. Mm-hmm. It's like you feel his sorrow, his angst. It's like, all right, he does all of this. Doesn't know for who, doesn't know why, but he has his little dot matrix printer and he gets those little three questions and he opens that door and then he ushers whoever this person is into a chance for something else. And, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody can relate to that. It's why do they get a, cha- a shot at something and I don't. I, I can't think yeah. of I think everybody has wondered that at some at some time in their life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, hey, you got extra credit. Why did you get extra credit on that test and I didn't? Uh, you know, yeah, exactly. going back to school, there's always that. Why do you get that and I don't? Mm-hmm. And you really bring that to life. And Justin uses the camera and. When you come in with those, zoom in with those r- extreme close-ups, those ECUs are powerful, they're intense, and they're dark. But then we find out there is light to come. And you really work that so beautifully. You know, the, the visuals here, the cinematography, is truly a layer of storytelling in bringing this film to life. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a huge aspect of it, and it's a the, the the part of, you know, probably one of the parts of filmmaking I get most excited about is is cinematography and just what you're putting on the screen and how you're putting it on the screen is like in essence that's you know kind of what what filmmaking is, right? Um, so it's what separates it from a stage play or a novel or uh, what have you. So uh, we were we were really hyper-focused to try to make this, like I said, I mean, or I, I guess like you said, um, if you're not doing a, a tropical island, how are you going to make this version of the story pop and sing and still feel special? And, and so it was, a, it was a lot of those, those elements coming together. You know, we had to, had to try to get it right the best we could. Well, another very big element in Welcome to Happiness and it's an element that makes me very happy in this film, is your music. You were the composer. You wrote the music. You have some, you know, some, you know, needle drop, original needle drops that you've also written for the film. The music, the scoring is fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. There's a whimsy to it um, and playful undertones that you bring in. Not just in the composition, but in the instrumentation. And then the lyric songs that you have are so specific and scene-specific. Uh, you've got one mm-hmm. that I am absolutely in love with. It's the Burn Down the Wick, around the 30-minute oh, yeah. minute mark. And i got to tell you. That's my, my buddy Pete LeClaire, yeah. Oh, <laughs> that, that scene where that is playing and... It could be a standalone music video. You have Molly as Lillian in her long red dress, barefoot, slow shooting in slow motion outside, coming up a walkway that's white picket lined. You've got the rose bushes, bright red rose bushes happening, blue sky, green, green grass, all in slow motion. It is stunning. 
but everything that's oh. happening, the lyrics speak directly to everything that's happening and the emotions of that moment, and it is perfection. Oh, wow. Thank you, and I will certainly uh, extend that to um, Pete LeClaire. He, he wrote that song and sings that song, and um, all those needle drops, you know, are I, I co-wrote, I think, one or two of them with him, but um, really what I wanted to do was have the sort of in the tradition of like Harold and Maude with Cat Stevens, or mm-hmm. I, I think about um, there's Elliot Smith with Goodwill Hunting. There are these films I can point to where I always think, or uh, 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 another great one is uh, About a Boy with the uh, Badly Drawn Boy. There's these artists where their the soundtrack album uh, almost just becomes a another album in their in their catalog, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I wanted to do that with this movie, and I wanted it to be a Pete LeClaire album <laughs> because uh, that is a friend of mine that I went to high school with who I think is the most brilliant songwriter, the most beautiful voice. He is the most wicked guitar player. When they're walking up the stairs in slow motion that you're talking about, you know, it's mm-hmm. all done to a guitar solo. The, the, the vocals have stopped at that point, you know, and, and it's Pete just ripping that absolutely beautiful guitar solo. And um, I think... You know, so that was kind of that half of the soundtrack. And then, yes, there is the other half, the, the background instrumental score, like you said, that, mm-hmm. that I, I wrote. Um, you know, it's funny. I uh, So I actually went to school for music composition. That's what I have a degree in. Um, and despite that, I still did not want to write the score for the movie. I <laughs> knew that I was wearing enough hats already. <laughs> and my thumbprint was firmly all over the, the, the lens enough. So, um, you know, for one reason or another, the, we actually had hired a composer and, and it didn't exactly work out. And so out of, out of a matter of just time crunch and budget, it was sort of decided, okay, Oliver, you, you have the skill set. You just kind of got to step up to the plate and do it, you know. And so I did. And, you know, now I'm really, really, really glad I did because um, I learned that I do love scoring movies. And I've since done it uh, two or three times since then. Um and, you know, just as the composer, not as something I was the writer and director on, um, I would actually like to do even more of that. Just, mm-hmm. just be the composer on something I'm otherwise um, uh, not connected to because I, I learned, I always thought they were separate skill sets in my brain, you know, or maybe not skill sets. Um, they just, I, 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 even when I was going to, to, to college and I was a very, very passionate film uh, lover and, you know, knew I did want to make films. Um, but at the time, you know, my focus was on music composition and people just generally, you know, they always just assumed, Oh, I get it. So you want to score movies when you, when you graduate. And I would always say, Oh no, no, not at all. Like it never even really even occurred to me. These are like just different passions of mine. They, there's like the left half of my body is a composer and the right half is a filmmaker, you know, and through welcome to happiness, sort of having to do that, sort of being pushed, to do that I learned that I really do love doing it and uh so yeah it was it was a really fun thing and um the score was uh uh produced by my friend um Mike Eisenstein who we just call USA Mike that's his uh his nickname <laughs> but uh um he's the best and you know he has a lot to do with like you said the instrumentation is pretty grand at times and mm-hmm. fun and, and there's a quirky element to it he was really helpful there and um so we we you know uh, it was a team effort, and uh, but yeah, I think we ended up with a, a great 
a great soundtrack. He really did. And that now this begs the question, though, because so often when you hit the editing bay and you're working with Lily Grabowski as your editor, did you have a temp score to work from, or had you written the score already? Were you composing it no, as you I, went through editing? Yeah, I hadn't. That, that's a, a really good question. And um, no, I had not written any of the score. Because like I said, at, at that point, I was still thinking someone else was going to do it. So um, so it just came to a point where, we, you know, we yes, we did have quite a bit of temp score. Um, some of it is sort of similar to what ended up in the movie mm-hmm. um, in what we, you know, ended up ultimately with as an original piece. Um, some of it is wildly different. We went a completely different direction once we actually came to writing the uh, original score. Um, but there, there was, um, there was temp needle drops and temp score and Peter was just sending me, it's funny, you know, um, now that I'm thinking about it and remembering Peter had written like four or five original songs for the movie. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I was starting to panic because they weren't working. Um, and I, they weren't, they weren't what I wanted. And then I, I had a, a, a day where I went back and I just laid on my couch and I listened to a huge catalog of older stuff he had written and demos he had and stuff that he had never written for the movie. And suddenly I was like, Oh, that's the one for this scene. And that's the one for this scene. And so he, poor Peter did write the only one that, that, that <laughs> I think I actually used was a song called um, toes at bay. Uh, and it's what it's the song that plays when, um, Lillian comes and wakes up Woody in the desert and they make the bed together. Mm. Um, unbelievably gorgeous song with wow. incredible guitar uh, finger picking and a vocal performance that um, I happen to know Peter did live. Um, it's it's a uncut take. It's not, there's no overdub. Um, it is him playing the guitar and singing um, and, and it's, you know, without any edits, it's just beautiful. And uh, so that one I used, um, and all the others I, I ended up. There's still Peter, and there's still his original music, but um, just not the ones he actually wrote for the movie, which is a weird, a weird thing that happened. But um, we, you know, we were happy. It, it turned out great. Well, you know, and and you mentioned the, the desert scene, and and you know the third act where we are out in the desert, and it's the wide open space. It's totally unfettered. The camera goes wide, whereas for the bulk of the film up to that moment, you were you were in either those extreme close-ups uh, for a, a few moments, or in your basic your mid two shots, um, and mm-hmm. and maybe a couple you know a couple close-ups. So for the most part, you were shooting you and Justin were shooting in in mid twos, um, but then we get to that third act, and after we officially meet Clairborn and Osmond. Who and I have to say, Francis Conroy and Robert Pike Daniel are an absolute delight watching the two of them. Uh, They're incredible, yeah. Oh my Absolutely. God, they are just so adorable, so charming. <laughs> They're like a, a a Mr. and Mrs. Claus, um, possibly on speed. I'm not sure, but <laughs> they just keep right. puttering and puttering and puttering. Um, and they know everything, and they do everything, and they're they're wonderful. Uh, their performances are great. But once we get to that point, and then we're really out in the desert, and things open up, you know, you and Justin take that camera wide. You know, it's like a clean slate. 
a clean slate, a wide, empty canvas for whoever is lucky enough to be there. And it is so powerful to see that. And the fact that there's no dialogue. There's really no dialogue out there. Uh, yeah. So it is, it's just, it is stunning. It really is stunning, Oliver. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's, you're, you know, you hit the nail on the head. It definitely, the movie, we spend the majority of the movie in, in pretty uh, confined mm-hmm. interiors, you know, these people living very uh, isolated lives. It's, a, you know, essentially um, the story of three orphaned guys living alone, you know, um, separately, not together. You right. Know? So um, they're in these pretty isolated worlds. And then, yeah, then when, when they, when they get the opportunity at the end, when it, when it opens up, we want to, we want to open up, with them, you know, and, and, and sort of show that and, and, and embrace that. Um, you know, now, have yeah. you done anything? Because on Friday, the director's cut, what have you done? Have you done anything for the director's cut that is significantly different so, than the originals, than the original cut? You, you said you had seen, um, you've seen the new cut, yes? You said you saw the chapter titles that have been added to it? Uh, yes. Or my. Yes. Yes, and so I the just, version you, you I love this. Four thirty this morning while I was yes. still sleeping. <laughs> um, is so you know it's funny. Uh, it's not really a director's cut as much as it's a what we've also sort of been. I, I'm not sure what um, they're actually the distributors actually going to call it when it comes out. I championed special edition. That's what I want to, to rob Star Wars of its um, uh, coinage there um, because. <laughs> You know, a director's cut implies that I didn't really have um, control the first time mm-hmm. around. In a traditional sense, a director's cut means, you know, the director had a bunch of stuff maybe he wanted to put in in a studio or a producer or what have you, made him cut it out. And here we are years later, he's getting to do, he or she is doing the, the version they always wanted to do. And they are, you know, putting all these scenes back in. And we have the exact opposite situation mm-hmm. here where I've cut 15 minutes out. Well, movie. because I actually wanted to ask you. That's a question. what I. That's what you I know, thought, um, Oliver. Because I'm watching yeah, it. I wanted to know how you felt as someone who really did enjoy. I've you know spoken with a handful of done some interviews and stuff the last couple of weeks, and I with a lot of people who this is their first time uh, seeing the movie, and which has been really really fun to talk to people who this is their first experience with it. But as someone who did see it and enjoy it the first time around. Very curious to get uh, your thoughts on, on how the special edition Okay, plays. well, for, um, for this... Because it is 15 minutes shorter. I noticed it was shorter, and I kept thinking, all right, nothing was put in. Um, <laughs> right. But it moves brisk. It it's, moves a little more briskly. And mm-hmm. there were a couple little lags, a, a couple little incongruities in the original, um, in the original release version. And I was racking uh-huh. my brain, and I even went digging. Because I save all my notes from screening films for decades. Uh-huh. And I actually went looking for my notes and my review and everything on this. And, yeah, a couple of things that I had noticed, some incongruities that didn't sit right, they weren't in this one. So, yeah, you pulled some stuff out. I love the chapterization, but it moves so briskly. Um. Uh, when it ended, I didn't realize that an hour and 35 minutes had passed. Yeah, yeah, it definitely um, was, the, you know, just with some hindsight, it's amazing how that works. You I know? Just... And it wasn't a question of 
you know, I, I, I think it's worth saying it, it wasn't a matter of me being too precious five years ago because that's mm. the assumption everybody has is, oh, he just when he was so close to it, he just couldn't bring himself to cut this and couldn't bring himself. To, I there was already 30 minutes of, of cutting room floor material mm-hmm. just. You know, to be like, there is so much welcome to happiness yeah. that exists. We shot we shot a, a much longer script than even made it into the original version. So I really, I, you know, without sounding whatever defensive or anything, I don't think I was ever actually that precious. Mm-hmm. I was really comfortable cutting things if if I felt they needed to be cut. I just couldn't see how. Yeah, I couldn't see how to get it shorter. I couldn't see that we could actually do without this scene and the story still works. You know, I, there was just moments I just simply couldn't see and no one else could either. No one else ever suggested, Hey, you should cut that. Scene. Mm-hmm. You should cut that scene. It was never brought up. Um, there were other things that were brought up. You should cut this. You, by the way, the slow-mo walk you're talking about, you know, oh, with no. the wick. No. Everyone <laughs> and their brother told me to cut that. Oh. It's a slow motion walk. The move. Why is that in the movie? Get that out of there. That's, that's 60 seconds we don't need or whatever it is, or 40 seconds we don't need. So everything I that was suggested I cut is still in this version. But there's a whole bunch of 15 minutes of other stuff I realized, oh, I don't think I actually need that. I don't need that, mm-hmm. that I did cut. And I think by doing that and adding the chapter titles, which I had wanted to do from the get-go and for one stupid reason or another just didn't do, and I regretted it the first time I ever saw the movie with an audience, I just knew this helps organize the movie it helps uh with the kind of bizarre storytelling where you are going from a bunch of different characters and a bunch of different stories Mm -hmm. you know traditionally movies don't work like that right they work they sort of follow one one hero through a three-act structure and the types of things that do work like that are tv shows and novels and uh which both have episodes and chapters, you know, and I just, it's just, it makes so much more sense for this story to do that. And it does help move it at a brisk pace. So those are things I got to do. And I got to put uh, a few, I did actually get to put a few things back in that I did cut the first time around. One of which it's so funny you say Mr. and Mrs. Claus, because there's a bit now in the movie where we do get to see Osmond and Claiborne at night, mm-hmm. and they have like I think Osmond has a little nightcap on yes, that looks indeed. straight out of Towards the Night Before and Christmas. It is, that is <laughs> just know? so and adorable. She has a bonnet, you know. Yeah. So and they're at a computer screen. Yeah, they're just. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, that wasn't there before, and but it would just that was not there before. It, the other thing that wasn't there before, um, that's in there now. That's a really, really nice moment that Nick Offerman and I both just really thought was touching, and unfortunately got cut the first time around. Is um, Moses cleaning the apartment. Yes. Um, and there's just something nice about he, no, Woody left, you know, this is, makes no sense to anyone who hasn't seen the movie, but Woody left a very messy apartment behind mm-hmm. in, a, in a period of being very, uh, like you said, at rock bottom. And so Moses knowing what he's going through and he knows what happens when you're out there and the happiness when you go, he knows the whole thing. So he knows what he's going to come back. And when Woody comes back, he wants him to have a clean place. You yeah. know, so there's just something kind of sweet about that. And, um, I guess a little bit um, maternal about that in a way yeah. that I thought was nice for Moses to do for him. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, those are some little moments that actually did make it back in. Yeah. Cause I which did was really, really nice. I did notice. Yes. We had a clean, Woody had a clean apartment and I'm thinking, wait a minute, Woody never cleaned the apartment. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and I could relate to that. 
<laughs> but you know, but um, but you know, I it really it moves along so well, Oliver. But I have to ask you, you know, and of course, don't beat yourself up. Nobody should should even beat yourself beat you up about this for the original version, um, because number one, it was your first film, writing, mm-hmm. directing, composing, first feature, and I think and. I think what did I what did I what did I write in 2016? Um, I even put in here that this. Wait a minute, I'm going to find it just for you. I'm going to find it. Um, oh yeah, well I called you a gifted storyteller, melding visual story and performance, and truly welcomes us with welcome to happiness. Um, no oh, one, no one. Thank you delightful from beginning to end no one would presume that welcome to happiness is oliver thompson's writing and directing debut um and that that's verbatim from 2016 that's very very nice of you to say so and i stand by that now but you know you've got a learning curve you come out there you knocked it out of the park from the start but now you've got some years of wisdom and reflection and you know of and of course, we're also coming out of a pandemic with the world on lockdown, with isolation and re- times of reflection for people. And so for you to then reflect on your own film and make a, a few changes like you have makes perfect sense to me because you have a different mindset sure. now than you had when you made this film in 2015. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, like you said, I've grown, matured. I've, I have more experience. I've worked, you know, so much, uh, on so many other things. They all inform, you know, your, how you feel about the, the, your previous work and maybe you should leave it alone and let it be what is. That's a whole star Wars, George Lucas argument. Yes, (laughs) indeed. Whether we should or should, but you know, in this case, um, the, the original version will always exist for the people who saw it and prefer that. And um, this special edition or director's cut, whatever they uh, end up dubbing it, yeah. uh, is there. And, and if anyone cares, it's the version I like more. <laughs> and I'm, I love. I mean, I like both versions. Um, I love the chapterization because of the very nature of the film, and because you know Woody is a writer. He writes books. Exactly. Yep. Books yes, have chapters, it to... so that yes. it, it, it's perfect. So, you know, in that respect, I do prefer, you know, this special edition. I think special edition is the proper thing to call it. That's just me, <laughs> but I think that's... that's Me too. Yeah, I think that's the way to go, not director's cut, special edition. But one yes. last question for you, Oliver. Um, I'm mm-hmm. really curious. The re-release... Or the release of the special edition now. How how important do you think the timing of this is, given what the world has gone through since you first made the film and since it fir- was first released? Mm-hmm. So, like I said, I've done a you know uh, some interviews over the last couple of weeks and you know i've been asked that um a bunch of times and i have to be honest um that i hadn't actually until asked um i hadn't considered it you know and i think that's to me 
I think these things maybe just happen more organically. Maybe I, it was very much on my mind, but I'm just not even aware it's on mm-hmm. my mind. Or maybe it just truly wasn't, and I was just purely thinking selfishly about my own thing. Oh, I want to. I have an opportunity to make it better. I'm going to do that. I don't. I really don't know. But I, what I do know is that I keep getting asked that question. So clearly, there is some poignancy there, and I will. Um, and I'm and I'm glad and I'm grateful that you know that's something that um, other people are noticing and maybe it just is the perfect time for it and uh, that that's awesome. Well, <laughs> that's I, and all I, I can really think or say. Well, I think now too because of the isolation of the characters in Welcome to Happiness. And their isolation has more or less led them to hit rock bottom and to want a do-over, to need a do-over, and to question themselves and have somebody put the question to them. Would you? Do you really want to? What if you wanted to do it over? Because, you know, it Mm -hmm. feels almost like a do-over, you know, as everything started opening up and coming out of lockdown. It felt almost like a do-over. Um, not yeah, that the do-over's right. been going really well. Uh, <laughs> 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 thank, thank you, Delta variant. Um, yeah. But you know, I think it's more relatable now for people because they were for, they yeah. were forced, and then it became okay. Well, yeah, we're opening stuff up. There are vaccines, but then it becomes self-imposed that you still don't want to go out there for whatever reason. So I think the film is more relatable and resonant to people now that they might might not be as low as you know as some of these characters are as Kyle may be. Um, yeah, but yeah, I think you're I think you're right, and a lot of people have said that. So uh, I I really hope that's true and uh, that it, it is more relatable and that it, you know people a whole new um, whole new group of people find it and that would be really cool. I hope so. Oh, my God, Oliver, yeah. this has been so much fun getting to talk to you about this film, a film I have loved for years. Um, I can't wait to see what you do next with a feature. I hope you'll come back on the show again. Oh, I would love to. Thank you. This is, has been a real blast and a real pleasure, and I'm, I'm, I'm very honored, uh, all your kind words. Thank you so much. Eh, if it sucked, I'd tell you that, too. So... <laughs> <laughs> But it doesn't. It didn't then. It doesn't now. So job well done. Um, And I can't wait to see what you bring us next. Well, I can't wait either. Thank you so much. Oh, Oliver, thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Oliver Thompson, writer, director, composer. Welcome to happiness. Friday, Friday, the 27th. You can see that. CryptoZoo, you can see right now. Next week, we've got Jay Silverman is is back with us with another film. Jay was with us a couple years ago uh, for a charming film. Now he's back again with another little indie gem called Saving Paradise. So Jay's going to be back with us um, next Monday. So until then... You want to check anything out? Go to BehindTheLensOnline.net. Until then, I'll see. You. I'll be here next Monday. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>